Hey, how are you? Hey, uh, you know, just like every week, I'm actually good. Like, life is great. I'm settling into my new routine at school. My kids are starting to settle into school, though, you know, new school, new challenges, but uh, nothing crazy. So I'm just ready to, like, embrace the new rhythms and dive in. So I'm feeling really, really good about it. How about you? Yeah, we are jumping into some routines. And one of my favorite things about this year's routines is that both my kids are at the same school for the first time in quite a long time. And so they are both doing some of the same extracurricular activities. They're both theater kids. And so when I go to pick up my kids for theater, I'm picking up both of them. I don't have to run over and pick somebody else up from somewhere else. It's awesome. I love it. Uh, So I am doing wonderful. That is great. You know, I actually totally forgot to tell you about some amazing thing I got to do this weekend. What were you doing? This is the third time we've gotten to do it, but we got together with some extended family and we went up to a place up in Washington. Uh, We stay in these cabins and have a nice little weekend together, but we always go rafting and there is, uh, you got to look it up on YouTube at some point. Look up people going over Husum Falls, H-U-S-U-M, Husum Falls, and it's on the White Salmon River, and it's one of the largest commercially raftable waterfalls in the United States. And so we Hmm. get to go over this waterfall in a raft, in addition to like a bunch of other class four type rapids and then this class five waterfall. It is so much fun. We just had an absolute blast. And my youngest, we've gone on this rafting trip. That, Like I said, this is our third time. My youngest was finally old enough to go over the waterfall. And man, he was so thrilled to finally get to do it. So we just had an nice. absolute entertaining weekend going over this waterfall. So That's amazing. How cool. Yeah, you got to check out videos. Yeah, I can't wait to see. That's going to be fascinating. But what'd you call about today? Yeah, so we're coming up on a brand new series, uh, and it is on Miroslav Volf's amazing book, Exclusion and Embrace. And we hope all of our audience will Mm. join us in that. And Exclusion and Embrace, we're going to go through chapter by chapter to make sure we really understand what he's driving at. And then we're going to ask the question, so how do we do that? And how do we actually like work this into our lives and get to a place where we can embrace our enemies or the other? And that's mm-hmm. really the thing that he's wrestling through. And that's heavy stuff. It's going to be heavy theology. It's going to be heavy content in terms of like, how do I love my enemies? So before we get to that, I thought we could have some fun. I was recently listening to uh, like some old songs on a playlist of mine. And I'm like, you know what? I have some spiritually formative moments from some of these old, like 90s songs. And I wondered if you did too. And so I asked you to come prepared with a list and just say, what are some of the spiritually formative songs that you have from your growing up years? And I can't wait to find out what's on your list. And I'll be honest, it is a super weird list. (laughs) Uh, it's just some weird stuff on that list and it shows how weird my brain is. So I 
am really excited to go through some of these songs and create a formative 90s playlist. Ooh, yeah. But as I was, so I went through and was listening to every 90s song I could think of over the last week or two since you asked me to do this. And I have two initial thoughts before we get to the actual songs, if you don't mind. I want to throw two thoughts out there about how I think this actually works, because I found myself wrestling with certain things as I listened to this and asked, was this song formative for me? Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. I asked myself the same question, uh, but what do you mean? What's going on? Okay, so thought number one is there are a lot of times when I think there is sort of a cycle going on because music rings true for me or rang true for me when I was 15 because it's expressing something I already think rather than forming me into something new. Does that make sense? So you're saying it didn't advance the issue. It just resonated with something that was already there. Absolutely. Uh, and this had me thinking, I was thinking about this a lot because a lot of times we talk about how music is this really powerful uh, medium to teach people. But I, I really, as I was listening to this and reflecting on my own life, wrestled with, does music teach people or does music just capture what they already believe? And for me, a lot of the songs, even the ones I'm going to share, it's hard to say that they formed me, but they certainly were emblematic of the formation that was happening in the moment. That's really fascinating. I am like reevaluating my own list under that rubric. I think that I have songs that fit into the formation category, as you're defining it, and I have songs that fit into the resonance category. So that's interesting. Yeah. And, and that's it's hard to look back and decide, and I can't figure out which one's which, but that was one thing. And then the other piece of this that I think is really interesting about music, as I listened to some of these songs, I found myself not thinking, yeah, 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 that's what I think. But wow, that is what we were thinking. Mm. Often the we was us evangelicals or us Christians or us Christian teens, whatever the group was. And I found myself thinking that music on some level doesn't form me. It helps me form into the group. So it sort of gets the group on the same page and emphasizes the thoughts that are communal rather than the thoughts that are individual, which I think is a really powerful thing. Yeah, I am realizing my long-founded distrust of the group and mm -hmm. my reluctance to go wherever the crowd is going. And so, as you said that, it made me feel uncomfortable because I'm like, oh, was I like pulled down roads I didn't need to go down because of these songs? And I think some of them I recognized as that and actually didn't really adopt as my own. But it's impossible to avo avoid that altogether. It's, I don't know. I find myself uncomfortable with what you just said. And, and I don't, 
while I tend to be a group think avoider as well, I don't necessarily mean it as a bad thing. One of the things I've been reading James K. Smith's book recently, How Not to Be Secular, and he talks about some of the transitions in thinking from the pre-modern to the modern era. And we have come to deeply value individual thinking and living and willing and choosing on a level that is not necessarily consistent with what church is all about and what being part of a Christian community is all about. And so I actually was thinking of it on some level as a positive thing. This is a way that we get to think and process about our experiences together, which is why a song becomes popular. Hmm. And that's not necessarily a bad or good thing. It is just a true expression. Yeah. And yes, that's good. That's a good corrective to my own distrust because we have to think similarly. You know, we have to believe that Jesus is the God, that he's the Messiah, that he died for our sins, like all these like classic Christian beliefs. Like, yeah, we have to hold these in common. So it's not as though groupthink, if you will, is bad or resonating with other people's thoughts is bad. But so those are my two big thoughts. I can't stick those into one of the songs I pick, but with those sort of caveats, I am super curious to start hearing some of the songs. So what's one of the songs off of your list? Well, since you kind of started a little off script, I will also start a little off script with my first song. We had originally built this as 90s playlist. And so I do want to stick to the 90s. And I think I'm cheating because this song that I'm I'm going to cheat too. So that's great. Oh, okay, great. So the song that I'm going to reference is When God Ran. And it was originally released in 1985 by Benny Hester. Do you know this song? I don't. So it was re-released in 1999 by Phillips, Craig, and Dean. And so I feel like, okay, Mm. I kind of got the 90s in there. But my image of this song, this is a song about the prodigal son, which actually sets us up really well for the Miroslav Wolf study we're going to start in on next week, because Mm. he uses the prodigal son story as kind of the central point of his argument. But at any rate- Which we're doing, by the way, I meant to ask you this before- We're doing chapter one next week, right? That's what people should read if they want to read ahead. Yes. Chapter one of Exclusion and Embrace for next week. Yes. Perfect. Okay. Just making sure I'm, frankly, I wanted to make sure I read the right thing. (laughs) Right. Um, But anyway, when God ran. When God ran. Yeah. It's the picture of the prodigal son. And it's this moment when the prodigal is returning and the father runs to meet him. And the chorus of this is amazing. You know, then he ran to me, took me in his arms, held my head to his chest and said, my son's come home again. And I have a very vivid image of this song, not by the original artist or by Phillips, Craig and Dean, but by my mom. Mm. My mom is a talented musician. She has always been the church pianist. And she's often done a lot of vocals and solos and things at church as well. And one of the solos that she did on occasion was this song, When God Ran. But when she sang it, she sang it with such passion and such a vision of God running to her. You could feel that she was in this song. She was in this story. 
And it was so amazing. It captured my young imagination because I saw my mom engaging in this story so passionately. And so I love that song for no other reason than it seems to be the model for how I'm supposed to engage with God, to celebrate the fact that he ran and embraced me. So what did that model teach you about that? You said it's the model for how to engage with God. You know, in my vision, my mom gets emotional singing this song. And my mom, if if anybody out there is listening to this and knows my mom, they, they know she's not one to cry. She's pretty stoic. She's... Uh, this is not her normal character. So to see her cry or to see her tear up and be emotional about God running to her, I think it communicated to me the profound nature of what it means to be loved by God and how that changes somebody. So it set me up to realize, no, there's a deep encounter that I can have with God by allowing him to embrace me. Mm. Even if I didn't understand that as a young child, it, it at least gave me the vision that, no, 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 there's something big here, and I need to find it. That's awesome. It sounds like it really started you. I love that phrase. There's something big here, and I need to find it. It started you on a search. Yes. Yes, it did. But how about you? What's first on your list? All right. I will cheat as well. There are two songs not technically from the 90s on my list. I will use one of my cheats now, and I will use a, a song from 1987. So I grew up in the Northeast, not a place where lots of Christian bands ever went to play, particularly when I was younger. I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before. My first Christian concert was Harmon. And yes. I don't know how I could think about songs from my teenage years and not refer to Carmen and specifically sort of iconically to the champion. Oh my gosh. Okay. So the champion is on my list. I can't believe we already yes. found one that was... Th okay. So tell me about your, right. your story with the champion. I must have listened to this. And Carmen has like five songs that are the same basic storyline in like different contexts. Satan Bite the Dust is one of them. And it's like the Western version of this. It's There's a couple of these. And I loved them all and had all the tape of these. And I would like listen to this in my headphones and then like rewind backwards and listen to it again, and then rewind backwards and listen to it again. I mean, I must have like imagined myself into these songs for hours of my life when I was a kid. These played a huge part in helping me imagine the spiritual life. And mm. when I imagine the spiritual life, it is a slug fest against the enemy. I have got to beat him. And if I don't beat him hard, he is going to beat me. Mm. And that sort of fight and the spiritual life as a fight is deeply rooted in my spirit. So much so that I almost don't say it because I think to myself, 
Well, you almost don't. Of course it is. Everybody knows that. Uh, yeah. But there are enough different paradigms that can kind of be a centering theme for our spiritual life that for that to be the paradigm of spiritual development that I grew up in is very defining. You know, fight against temptation. That's what the spiritual life is really all about. It's fight and never give up because the minute you stop fighting, you have almost already lost. So how has that served you over time? I think both sides of the coin here. On the one side of the coin, it has been deeply beneficial because I have worked hard and trained hard for my spiritual life. I have always known that I have to consistently read my Bible and pray and that all of that is training so that when I am in everyday life, I can make right decisions and honor God with the way that I live my life. And I'm open to making hard, complicated, heavy decisions if that's what following Jesus is all about, because this is a fight and I know what the cost of not making those things is. And I'm not looking to be a civilian. I'm looking to be a fighter. Hmm. And so I see myself as in the game. And if it hurts, it hurts. That's okay. I think one thing that I didn't take out of this song as I was reflecting on it that I wish I had is that it's not the believer in the fight. It's Christ in the fight. Yeah. And all the believers are watching the fight as Jesus wins the battle. And one of the things, a buddy of mine says this about the book of Revelation. He says, it's fascinating that God in the book of Revelation gathers an army and then he goes and does the fight and mm. they just watch. <laughs> you know? And yeah. I, that is not natural for me. It is not natural mm. for me to want to be a bystander. It is not natural for me to want this sort of the person doing the hard work to be someone else. And so it is hard for me to be still and let God do the work. But I think that is deeply in the song. It really is. And honestly, that is what I got out of that song, The Champion. In fact, for many, many years, I didn't consider Easter complete without listening to that song. As nerdy Absolutely. and as like very specific generation as that is like i had to pull up the synthesizer and get this song going uh because yes. it just it just had this resonance and it helped me celebrate easter because we were celebrating the resurrection and the spiritual victory that jesus accomplished by rising from the dead and it was such an overpowering song with this message of deliverance and hope and victory that it just, it really set my Easter up well. In fact, I'm probably going to have to listen to it again this Easter just because we had this conversation. That's awesome. I love it. I was listening to it this morning and I do in fact remember every single word. Yes. Yes. Even the little demons in the background. Oh no. Yeah. No, no, not yet. Oh no. You're doing it wrong. You're counting wrong. <laughs> yes. That's <laughs> awesome. Uh, yes. So it, was that your primary thought or experience of it? Or what else about it was formative for you, if anything? No, that, that was it's on it. your list too. 
It was, it was. And it was for that reason, because I had to listen to it every Easter and mm. to some degree still do. But um, no, I actually want to key in on something else you said. You used the phrase centering theme a moment ago. And one of the centering themes of my whole life comes from Stephen Curtis Chapman's song, The Great Adventure. This mm. is the saddle up your horses song. Mm-hmm. So I have very, very vivid memories of this. Every time I hear this song, I am transported back to junior high. I'm playing for the basketball team. We're doing layup drills and our coach would crank up the sound system in the gym and blast the great adventure while we were doing layup drills. And yeah, so it just fires me up. It gets me going. It makes me feel like I need to be outside playing basketball or whatever. But it has remained one of my favorite songs, and it has remained kind of this, as you said, centering theme. Like, I don't know what's around the next corner. I don't know where this journey is going to go, but saddle up your horses. Let's go. We've got to just embrace this journey wherever it takes us. And it's this wild, crazy, unexpected ride. So just go. And... I mean, that's such a centering theme for every area of life because you don't, you never know what's around the next corner. You might start working toward a thing or you might think that you know where the next thing is, but there's so many twists and turns along the way that you just have no idea. And so I find this song something really familiar to come back to, but also reassuring to come back to because it just, it reminds me that I don't know what's happening, but I do know the person in whom I'm placing my trust. And that works. You know, that is a great theme song for your life in a lot of ways. You have had some very unexpected twists and turns. And I've watched you dive into some situations wholeheartedly as an adventure that could have been perceived in a lot of different ways. And it's interesting to think of of this song setting you up for those moments. Well, and I'm sure that you're even right now thinking about the moment that I left 911 and went and worked for a local private school. And that was I such... was not, but that is a good example of it. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, but at all these junctures, there's a couple others that I think you could have mentioned, but at all mm-hmm. of these junctures, I've come back to this song. And you're right, it did set me up for these. It defined these. It defined my approach to these moments. I, you know, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen, but let's just dive in. Yeah, that is a great example of it. It's not the one I was thinking of. I was thinking of years before that, when you had your mother-in-law, Virginia, move in with you, which is a giant life change, and you guys just sort of dove into it head first. Yeah, that was a hard season. We didn't know it at the time, but ultimately she was terminally ill and we spent two years caring for her. Honestly, that was a lot. I mean, that was Shelly. She was taking care of our three young kids and I was trying to certify as a dispatcher and that is a really challenging thing to do. And so we had a lot of stress and we were taking on Virginia as well. So that feels like a dual decision and not just something that I got to dive into or I chose, but we both, we have that same mentality about life and ministry. Like 
I, who knows how this is going to end? It doesn't matter how it's going to end. This is what we're supposed to do. Let's just dive in. So, yeah, it was very interesting and and neat to watch you because that is exactly how it felt to me watching you guys do that. Is because yeah, it wasn't you deciding; it was your family decision. But let's dive in is exactly what it felt like. We don't know where this is going, but whatever. This is still the decision we got to make. Let's go. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, what's next on your list? All right, uh, this is probably the most formative song on the list for me, and still one of my favorite bands and one of my favorite songs. And it is the first song on Skillet's first album, I Can. Do you remember this song at all? No. Do you have some of the lyrics that you can prompt me with? So this song, it hits a bunch of themes. The song starts off capturing a lot of the shame that I think many of us who were following Jesus in the 90s shouldered and didn't know what to do with. So, Mm. I mean, the song literally starts off by saying, looking on the sad times, the guilt and all the shame, I have learned to submit my existing hurts and pains, all the grief I've set aside, because I am, I am, I am feeling underrooted, feeling undermined, can the grace of God cover me this time? And when I feel the pain, I know why I feel strange. And when I hear the rooster crow, I am ashamed. It is this deeply pained, deeply inadequate feeling about the spiritual life. But then there is this breathtaking for me bridge three quarters of the way into the song where it says, and do you really love my soul even after I hated you? And do you really know my name? Can I really come to you? Are you really more faithful than the changing of the seasons and the morning sun? Do you really know my name and can I really come to you? I can. Oh, wow. I got chills with the I can. And he... This is a skillet is not a is not a light band. I mean it's not super super <laughs> heavy, but he screams I can if I recall correctly 17 times. <sighs> after all of that. And this captures the spiritual story of my teenage years perfectly. And Deeply contributed to the solution I found to the shame I was dealing with. I grew up with tons of shame. I knew well that God's standard was high and my performance was inadequate. And I knew that that was personal between me and Jesus. And this song's way out of that, that God is faithful and gentle and kind and good to me in the midst of my unworthiness. It was somewhere in my junior year. And I don't know, but I would not be shocked if this song played a major role in the moment where I realized that grace meant that my relationship with Jesus was about more than what I deserved. It was about what he chose and his love for me. And my unworthiness did not play a part in it. And it was okay because he's good to me no matter what. And Mm. my life 
since that moment has been a journey of trying to understand that to the deepest part of my being. And this song captures it and teaches it and expresses it in this like heart-wrenching, beautiful way. Wow, yeah. You know, it's funny you talk about that maybe this song was the catalyst. And I think that's something that we talked about a couple of weeks ago on our Stop Shooting on Yourself episode. I think you asked mm. me, like, look back at your own biographical story and try to pinpoint the shift that started happening. And it was difficult for me to do that. But as I look at some of these songs, I realize that the seeds of that shift were sown in mm. some of these songs. And for me, that was really a, a powerful revelation in my next song, which was Jars of Clay's song, Love Song for a Savior. And mm. that image of being in a field and, again, running to God, uh, but the and the tears will fall down and she'll pray, I want to fall in love with you. I want to fall in love with you. I want to fall in love with you. That refrain was so powerful for me. That's such a beautiful song anyway, but it sparked this in me. Like, I want to fall in love with you. Almost like I want to realize the vision from my childhood of when God ran. It's that same mm -hmm. image of that embrace with God that I want to find a way to experience that. And that's the seedbed of the changes that have been made over the course of my life that bring me to a place of experiencing that. Mm, that's good. I was searching for which Jars of Clay song was going to go on my list, and I ended up not putting one on. And I'm so glad that you brought that up because that song Absolutely. It's not, I have fallen in love. It's, I want like the longing that that mm -hmm. song captures. Absolutely. I think for many of us ignited that fire of believing there was more in it for our relationship with God than we currently had. Yeah. I mean, you talk about group think, and if that's, if that's the group think that we all experience because of that song, fine, sign me up. I'm on board with that. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So I really want to hear the rest of your list, but I don't know that we have time for a full story on every one of them. Just rapid fire for me. What else is on your list? Good question. All right. The rest of my list, and sometime we have to catch the story on this one, but Save Tonight by Eagle Eye Cherry, which is not a Christian song on any level. And then God is Not a Secret by the Newsboys. Just as a nod to the Newsboys Take Me to Your Leader album, which is my all-time favorite 90s album. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Avalon's Testify to Love. Oh. And then a giant throwback that was incredibly, incredibly influential in my way of thinking is the theme song from the Lerner and Lowe Broadway production Camelot also titled Camelot. That was from like 1968 or something, but I listened to it in the 90s, so I included it. <laughs> uh, 
Okay, that's um, super fascinating. I'm like regretting the fact that we do not have time to unpack these. <laughs> you just blew my it's mind. It's a weird list. <laughs> um, but wow. What else is on your list? Okay, well, I only have two songs left on my list. One is Cademan's Call, Shifting Sand. I Ooh. cannot get through the 90s without Cademan's Call. If Shelly and I have a band together, it is Cademan's Call. Our very first date was a Cademan's Call concert. So, and we just love their music. We've listened to it for our entire relationship. Anyway, but Shifting Sand has a special place in our heart. We'll have to talk about it another day. And Beyond Belief by Petra. I, we have to have a Petra song on here. Petra song. Petra was my, this was my very first album ever was Beyond Belief. Uh, it, well, I guess it was a tape and I had it, I listened to it on my Walkman. But yes, that song I've played it a thousand times since I was since I got that tape when I was twelve. I don't know whatever year it was, but yes, I'm sad we don't get to hear the stories. But you can make up your own story about why those things were life changing for us. <laughs> oh my gosh, this, I am a, I'm picturing like really grotesque fan fiction out there, <laughs> just like some really awful parody of who we really are. But oh, it can't be good. But I do want to turn to the audience and say, you know, these are the songs that carried us through the 90s and formed us in those years. I'm so curious what songs from the 90s were really formative in that period for you. Please make sure you post that and share them with us because it's amazing to me how these songs became a soundtrack not just for that period of our lo- from of my life, but for my whole life. And I, I think that's probably not just me. Yeah, for sure. Or if you are not of the same generation, what are the formative songs from your generation, from your you know impressionable years? Yeah, that's a great point. They say that whatever the songs that you listen to in your late teenage years were, those are the songs that stay with you. Yeah. I don't know who they is in that situation, but they do say that. Yeah. I listen to they, so. Yeah, they are infrequently wise, but, you know. Well, all right. Speaking of wisdom, lay it on us. What have you been thinking about this week? I don't know if this is wise, but it is an observation. You know, I was starting to read in Deuteronomy, and one thing that strikes me is that the very first real anecdote in the book of Deuteronomy. So if you remember, Deuteronomy starts with the like history recap, right? It's the very first, you know how episodes of shows now catch you up on the story to date, you know, and you can hit skip and that's wonderful because you just watched it because that's what binge watching is all about. Um, (laughs) But so Moses is the first person to ever do this sort of recap. And he recaps Sinai to the present moment when he's about to die and the people are about to go into Israel or or to go in to take the land. And the first anecdote he recounts is when he is appointing what I would call associate leaders in the nation, people who are going to be commanders and judges over hundreds and fifties and tens and whatever, And their job is to deal with the complicated stuff so that only the really heavy stuff gets up to Moses. As I was reading it, I thought, what does that have to do? Like, why is that the story he started with? 
And what's interesting to me is almost immediately it gets into several stories in which the people of Israel come directly to Moses and Moses has to deal with the people alone and it goes badly. The primary example of this is the moment when they are on the edge of the promised land the first time. And the people of Israel say to Moses, we don't want to do that. Like, we're not going in. That's scary. Because the scouts come back and Moses, in listening to the scouts, hears, hey, this is really ripe land. This is going to be great. And the people in listening to the scouts hear, these people are really big and they're stronger than us. And this is scary. Mm. And the whole time I find myself thinking, where are these appointed leaders that should have been hearing what Moses heard and like settling the people down? Like, why is he stuck dealing with the entire nation all by himself when he just appointed leaders to take care of this problem? Because the mm. lack of those leaders is a major reason these people are freaking out and end up going in the wrong direction. Mm. And if there had been people appointed over hundreds, fifties, and tens who were able to listen to their concerns, but then help them repackage and reprocess their thinking from a godly perspective before it sort of snowballed into the entire nation thinks this. That story, which cost the nation of Israel 40 years in the desert, could have gone a very different direction. You know, that's interesting. I actually am starting to, I'd never thought along these lines before. So this is a brand new reaction to your own thought. But what if that's only part of the commentary? What if the other part of the commentary is, had Moses done this sooner, his people would have been trained, his leaders would have been trained and experienced and prepared to handle such a crisis? Yeah, it's very possible. It just seems like such a giant leadership breakdown to let fear fester in the heart of the nation. It's so hard for me to not see that as a leadership fail. Yeah. And a systems and structures leadership fail. It's not like Moses failed in his talking to the people. It's, Moses, where are the people you appointed? Why are you not being like, hey, go talk to the people I appointed. Why are you talking to me about this? Hmm. Yeah. Like. Why are you talking to each other? You're all talking to the wrong people. Go talk to the people I appointed you to talk to. Mm. And I just wonder if that would have had any impact. Sure. So I don't know. I just, just has me thinking a lot. Yeah. That's super interesting. But what about you? What else have you been thinking about? All right. So I will prep you for the fact that this thought is really weird. So- my college roommate, John, and I, we continue to translate our way through Matthew. We just finished up chapter 15. We are thrilled to finish up another chapter. But we had this really just, it was very idiosyncratic. This is a very us conversation about this text. And so in Matthew 15, starting in verse 32, it says, but Jesus called his disciples to him saying, I have compassion for this crowd because they've already been with me three days and they haven't had anything to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry lest they become faint along the way. And John observed, it's like Jesus is setting them up. They've been around Jesus enough by this point to be like, caution, miracle ahead, right? Like this is, 
right? It's it's almost like the setup to a dad joke that like you should just see it coming, but they don't. They're like, well, I don't know. We don't have any food. And in Matthew's gospel, this is the second time Jesus has fed a big old crowd. He's already fed the 5,000. And so this should be old hat. And instead they're like, I don't know. I don't see any food. And we were realizing, we were talking about this setup that Jesus is doing. And it seems like Jesus sets up his disciples all throughout the gospels. And when we likened it to a dad joke, it really got my mind spinning because Mm. as a dad, I love dad jokes. I seize every opportunity I can to tell a dad joke. I will twist whatever words were just spoken and make it into a dad joke because it's my favorite activity. Even the ordinary things. Like the other day, we were driving at the beach and Shelly saw a bunch of pelicans. And she's like, boy, I've been seeing a ton of pelicans lately. I said, yeah, something about the weather just fits the bill. (laughs) (laughs) Right? I just, I love to grab those moments and make them into a dad joke. And it seems like Jesus loves to take ordinary moments and turn them into an opportunity for a miracle. And if you're around me long enough, you start to brace yourself for the dad jokes. But if you're around Jesus long enough, maybe you start to brace yourself for the miracle. And maybe that was part of the point. Jesus wanted to make ordinary life into the fodder for miracles as often as humanly possible, or as often as godly possible, uh, divinely Mm. possible. But he just wanted to train his disciples to always think about the ordinary moments of life as opportunities for miracles. And so now I'm starting to like rethink my view of the gospels through that lens. That's fascinating. I think that's a great point and question. When was Jesus looking for an opportunity to do a miracle because he was trying to train his people to expect them. Yeah. That's a great thought. Coming from the Baptist in the friendship. So uh, there you yeah, go. Yeah, absolutely. I wasn't going to say anything, but I was definitely thinking it. <laughs> I'm sure you were. I'm sure you were. I definitely was. All right. It's time for the Witch Josh question. All right. And today's Witch Josh question is, which Josh never had to meet his in-laws? That's such an ominous question, because that could mean a variety of different things, including death, by the way. (laughs) I realized that, you know, so the answer is me. And I did realize that because... As I was typing it out, getting ready for today, I realized it could mean because they died. Yeah. And that is not the case. They are, my in-laws are alive and well and delightful people. It's just that I have known my wife since she was seven and my in-laws were very influential people in my life when I was a teenager, long before I was dating uh, my wife. And so I've just known them practically my whole life, which is a much more heartwarming never had to meet them than, you know, if they had (laughs) both died in a car accident or something. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay. That's a pleasant story. It's a pleasant story to end on. Yay. 
<laughs> All right. Um, I would ask if we're going to tell pleasant stories again next week, but next week is our exclusion and embrace study. And I don't expect it to be unpleasant, but it's not going to be just a, you know, a happy dance the whole time. Yeah. It's going to be pretty, uh, pretty serious. And I'm very excited about it. I am too. So, all right. I guess I'll catch you next week for Miroslav Wolf. All right. I'll talk to you then. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.